Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. And in that attempt, which we have attempted 199 times, this is now time number 200. Big bit of episode for us big episode and we thought that we would change things up for a bit this is our beta version 2.0 at episode 200 <laughs> it took us yeah, a while yeah so we wanted <laughs> <laughs> we wanted to try something a little bit new uh of course still talk about the sunday morning political shows because that's our bread and butter but we wanted to explore how we had those conversations to begin with so what we did today is we actually split up the show. So normally, Brendan, you and I consume all the shows and then together decide what was the most important, what stood out, and kind yeah, of go Yeah, we have a pre-conversation. Yeah, many pre-conversations. <laughs> and that's how we decide our agenda. And we work on that agenda in tandem, in Google Docs. Everything live collaboration. Yes, deep, deep collaboration. But... <laughs> that's our life. But... <laughs> We changed it up today. Yes. And I want to talk quickly. Do you want to talk about how we changed it? Or do you want to just go straight into how, what we did first? I don't know how they're different. Well, I want to talk about <laughs> what inspired us to change it a little bit. Sure. Right? Yeah. So one of the inspirations for me is, okay, if you are a long-term listener of Polylog, you know that sometimes the shows cover the same stuff this week as they did last week, as they did the week before, as they did the week before. Sometimes we get into these periods where the way we structure our show, which is generally, how would you say, Naomi, subject matter based, right? Yeah, we identify the common themes. Right. The themes can sometimes be the same. It's like, oh my gosh, again, for example, this week we're talking about COVID and we're talking about Trump refusing to recognize his loss. Well, and that's been especially true in 2020 when... A third of all our conversations, I would say, have been COVID-related in some way, shape, or form. Either testing, or the vaccine, or exactly. cases, deaths, whatever it yeah. might be. So there's some uh, you know, frustration for us, because we don't want the show to feel stale in any way, shape, And we want to have a fresh conversation. Yeah, exactly. So that's part one. And the other part of that is, you know, I listen to our show every week, and... One thing that comes to comes to the fore for me is we sometimes have really interesting conversations, really insightful topics of discussion related to journalism, related to politics. But sometimes those conversations get buried under a lot of our explanation of, well, here's what the Republicans said, and then here's what the Democrats said. And we have a sense that we need to recap a lot of what was going on. And sometimes the insight gets lost in that or it's buried, right? Yeah. And I... I kind of go back and forth in the recap because we do have a lot of listeners who are not as voracious consumers of news as we are, and they trust our judgment and our insight, and that's why they listen to the show. And then we also have listeners who do watch and read the news as much as we do, and they don't need those recaps. And so we're constantly trying to find that balance of kind of 
making sure that both types of listeners get a lot of value. And we get we have listeners, a number of listeners, who consume all five Sunday shows as well. Plus ours. Yes, which- plus ours. You're just as crazy as we are. <laughs> yeah, but they want but they want that critical conversation right, exactly. too. You know, they don't need the recap as much. Totally. And the importance of the recap is context, right? We always want to provide context. That's mm-hmm. why we have so many clips, right? So we're not doing away with the clips. The clips are here. Clips to stay. Bread and but, butter. However, but we're changing up the structure. So I think I mentioned a couple weeks ago one of my 2020 gems besides our baby has been listening to the podcast You're Wrong About. It is an excellent podcast by Michael Hobbs and Sarah Marshall. And in it, they're often kind of dispelling some assumption or some notion. And they're journalists themselves. Right, exactly. Writers and journalists. And often, one of them kind of takes the lead in terms of the research and the other and explains it to the other one and the other one is responding back and kind of giving their impressions or whatever they kind of take turns oftentimes michael is the one who does the research but there have been episodes quite a few episodes where sarah's doing the the tables are flipped and and sarah's doing the research and explaining and it's just a lot a lot a lot of fun and absolutely i mean you've you've kept telling me to listen 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 and i finally this week listened to their episode about misinformation excellent oh i learned so much so much and the format's great because it's like the second person who didn't do the research is kind of standing in for the viewer standing in for the listener standing in for the audience who has some questions right, right? and like you're an active purchase the the other the second person is an active Active listener. An active listener, yeah. And you're kind of learning with them. So I think it, it makes the journey kind of collaborative. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So that's what we're doing today. I watched this week, and I also watched Fox News Sunday. Yep. And I took a look at Face the Nation, Meet the Press, and State of the Union. But we did not cross paths. Nope. So therefore, we are each of us is going fresh to a number of these shows. And we're going to present some of our impressions. And so what's the structure, though, Naomi? How are we structuring this? What are the segments? Yeah, so we wanted to kind of have it a little bit clumped up so it felt familiar, at least to our listeners. So we're going to have kind of worst moment, best moment, kind of a pseudo highlight low light. Yeah. But more, you know, quality moment, questionable moment. Ooh, yeah. That, that's actually great tagline. Maybe Quality we'll... and questionable? Yeah. Ooh, I like that. I know, I know. We might need to change that up. And then I'm we're going... that down. <laughs> and then... I don't want the clickety-clack. Why not? Keep it. <laughs> it's all <laughs> different here now. <laughs> it's a whole new world. Episode 200. <laughs> but then we're going to look at a question about politics. So either something in the political world or something legislatively, something that is an interesting moment politically. That stood out. That stood out to us, good or bad, or or just a point of conversation. And then we're going to look at something that stood out to us journalistically. So an interesting moment in journalism and how to explore it. And that's it. And we'll each go through these, uh, you know, these three kind of areas. Exactly. So let's begin, not with Highlight Low Light, but quality questionable moment naomi were there any quality or questionable moments i had a mega mega questionable moment okay so my questionable moment is the power player of the week on fox news sunday i think it was a few weeks ago i don't know two or three weeks ago or something i it was also my low light yes because it was don mcgann 
Yes. And it was about essentially his genius court packing that he's done. Yeah, and he I, was the architect for Trump's White House strategy on and Mitch McConnell. The court. Which, yes, it's not yes. like just Donald Trump. But anyway, I thought that was really so blatantly partisan and just really gross. Yeah, especially for a segment that Chris Wallace previously had said, look, we're going to highlight people who play trumpets at veterans, you know, funerals. And, and, we're and gonna, hat makers. Yeah, and, and, and people who make food for the poor. Like, Yeah, they're very, have been like soft, cushiony interviews that like are supposed to make you feel good or something. Yeah. Well, today's Power Player of the Week did not make me feel good. It was the CEO of the social network parlor, John Mates. Now, what drives me crazy about this is that one, first of all, Chris Wallace is not even on Twitter. He doesn't even care about social media. That's true. So this is clearly like something that Fox News has kind of forced him to talk about mm. on Fox News Sunday. And Parler is a site that has been really inviting and welcoming a lot of conservative users and talking about how they're so pro-free speech. It was essentially created for that purpose, no? Yeah, well, let's listen to a couple clips of the, the interview that Chris Wallace has with John Mates, the CEO of Parler. Twitter has millions of users. Facebook has billions. But there's a relatively new kid on the block that's creating quite a stir by doing things differently. Here's our Power Player of the Week. Parler is a paradigm shift when it comes to social media. So the idea is that people uh, have the power on social media rather than the central authority of uh, the company of itself. John Mates is CEO of the social networking site Parler. Parler is a fun new social media app. In a field dominated by tech giants, it provides a new and unconventional choice. The idea is free speech, privacy, and data sovereignty. The idea that you own your own data and your own experience. Mates compares the platform to a town square where people can engage without intervention. Conservatives have flocked to the site as an alternative to Facebook and Twitter, which they say censor their voices. How is speech more free on your platform than some of the others? On Parler, when you say something, it goes out to everybody that's following you instantly and in the order that you've said it. Movement. One that has come with controversy. The flip side of free speech is that you get racist slurs, you get violent threats, you get pornography. Any problem with that? So things that are illegal in the United States are not allowed on the platform. Things that people don't like in society, nasty racial slurs, things of that nature, that doesn't get picked up. But nasty racial slurs are not illegal. Right. So they are free game on Parler, essentially. Oh, is that what he's saying? Right. That they're not getting picked up to be flagged. They're not getting, they're not being removed. Oh, I thought he was saying they were removed. No, that oh. they're essentially the only thing that is flagged and taken off a parlor is illegal comments about illegal activity or preparing for illegal activity. So, wow. Yeah. So, okay, fine. Conservatives are going to parlor, but it's not like parlor is a mega, you know, like this, like a power player. They're just not. Facebook has billions of users. That's assuming you include Instagram and WhatsApp. Twitter has millions and millions of viewers, users. Hundreds of millions, I believe. Yeah. The other social media app that has 
more recently exploded in the last few years that I have never seen on Power Player of the Week is TikTok, which is huge among teenagers and young adult users on the internet. Worldwide, it's claiming 980 million active users just this last September. I mean, and that's up from 670 million the year before. Like, if you want to talk about an exploding platform, gee, Chris Wallace, why don't you spend some time talking to teenagers of how they're doing activism on TikTok? Nothing. I've never heard Chris Wallace talk about that. Not once. And okay, Parler has gone up quite a bit since the election. That part is true. So I didn't really get the full answer here then. So they are allowing pornography on Parler. Is that what he's saying? So if you're soliciting sexual activity, that would be an illegal activity, right? So Mm -hmm. that wouldn't be allowed. If you're posting like raunchy pictures, that would be allowed in comparison to Instagram, which might say that's pornography. It's like the difference of if the motivation is like explicitly illegal activity. It's not that you're offended by it. It's not that you find it inappropriate. It's not that you think it's like, you know, gross or mean or or, or racist or xenophobic. Like all those things are free game because they're not illegal language or illegal activity. So it's essentially going to become a place where hate just blossoms. Exactly. Where no one intervenes and says, hey, you can't talk to people like that. You can't talk to users like that. You can't, you know, troll people like that. And this is the platform that Chris Wallace wanted to have as their power player of the week. Yeah, a place with pornography and hate groups, just welcoming them in. Yeah, and especially the hate. And like, if you think about it, like if you take a step back and you see all these conservatives flocking to Parler, okay, fine. Maybe they do want like this town square where they can say whatever they want, including racist and xenophobic and homophobic comments back and forth. The other part is that like Chris Wallace is blatantly not doing his journalistic due, due diligence on really talking about how, well, it has been growing in users. There hasn't been, like, <laughs> it's not like there's a mass loss of Twitter users or people are leaving Facebook to now join Parler. Well, and I also have a question about misinformation and false information. Is there any concern there about, I mean, did he ask any questions like that? Chris no, Wallace? The, Chris Wallace asked zero questions like that. Yeah, absolutely not. There was no question about like the quality of content on Parler. It was just like a complete puff piece for Parler, for Fox News. And there was this really interesting article in the Washington Post on November 23rd. And the headline is, conservatives grumbling about censorship say they're flocking to Parler. They told us so on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) And the subheadline, it says, the pro-Trump internet can't stop talking about the exodus from big tech, but very few have actually abandoned their long-term social media homes. And we see that. We see that with influencers, like conservative influencers. So there's this person, oh, Dan Bongino. He's like been all about, he's like this, I think he's Latino or he's black. I'm pretty sure he's Latino and he's been a vocal activist for Trump. He said, stop the digital inquisition, join Parler. So he he tweeted that actually on November 11th, it was a day that he tweeted 90 times. On that same day, he only posted on Parler 51 times. And then there's another kind of <laughs> Trump influencer, Madison Giasotto. G- G- Giasotto. She tweeted out to her 190,000 followers that she was, quote, sick of big tech censorship. At the time of the article, she had posted to Parler five times and has also tweeted 
95 times. So clearly, like, they're not making the commitment to go to Parler. It's just kind of like a signal boosting that, like, hey, I'm a conservative and I think big tech is bad. And we see this even with, like, the most prominent of people, especially people who represent Fox News. Even Fox business anchor Maria Barty Romo, I think it's pronounced, she has over 900,000 followers on mm-hmm. Twitter. She has posted on Twitter. She has tweeted. She has tweeted on Twitter over 30,000 times. She is moving to Parlor as well because she is so like sick of big tech and she has concerns of free speech. And in two weeks in November, she posted to Parlor 118 times and tweeted 174 times. Oh my gosh. So, yeah. So, what are you doing, Chris? Like, one, why are you promoting a platform solely for your network? I'm sure he's not on Parlor, he's not on Twitter. And then you're not, it's again, it's just promo. It's not journalism. Yeah, yeah. Like you're doing a commercial at right. that point. Right. And why are you using this space? What, first of all, here's my question for Chris Wallace. What is Power Player of the Week? What is it? Like, who are you focusing on? Define what a power player is. That's what I'd like to know. Like, is a power player the person who is making food for the poor? Or is the power player some extremely hyper-partisan person who is trying to change the face of the U.S. judicial system? Or is it some tech startup that conservatives love? It's really getting concerning how much this space is becoming conservative promotion space on his show. Yeah, and of course his show's on Fox News, and you know we might have listeners who say, like, oh, what can you expect? But Chris actually does a really good job of using his time well especially in his interviews with his guests like he they're solid interviews and so to waste like eight minutes six minutes is just like he only has a weekly show it's not like he has a daily show like jake tapper or something he only has a weekly show and this is how he uses almost 10 percent of it yeah very very disappointing and a few just two things i'll finish with and then we got to move on number one is historically it's been extremely hard to knock down these tech giants especially social media because it's extremely difficult to of course social media works because everyone's there so to get it started it it just feels kind of like this dead space for a while until you get enough people inside of it and or facebook buys you (laughs) right well and usually the ones that take off is that they have a new medium right instagram pinterest you know, these all have different kind of, you know, one is more visual, one is more like right. shareable. It's new user experience. Yeah, new user experience. This doesn't really have that. It's more editorial question related. And I wonder if that's going to work. Like, for example, there is an alternative to Google that, you know, takes your privacy more seriously. And some people use it as their default search engine, DuckDuckGo. But it's it just hasn't really caught on. Because it doesn't really do anything different. Right. And that's interesting you mentioned kind of the viability of this platform. The only other one that is close to similar was a platform called Gab. And that one, I think technically still might be in place. But if you remember, Gab was the conservative platform where the domestic terrorist who did the shooting at the synagogue in Pittsburgh, he tweeted, or not tweeted, but he like posted on Gab like an hour before he shot up 
these attendees in the synagogue and Gab essentially got shut down. They lost their funding. Gab essentially lost all of its momentum after that shooting. Well, and that's the second point I want to make, which is that if you create a platform that invites hate groups, right, then then you stand the chance of being shut down. And like, hate to to f- blossom there. Right. Well, and th- and that has happened in the past where People don't understand that it's not always like the government shutting things down, but it's that these uh, companies that serve as like the hub for the internet where everyone goes through will potentially shut you down right, if it exactly. seems like you are like violating their terms. And their terms sometimes will have to do with, with spreading hate and things like that. So yeah. it'll be very interesting to see what happens here. There is another example of this, that a bunch of tech people left Twitter, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight years ago. I remember this when I was really deep into the tech sphere. And there was like this alternative to Twitter because there was such frustration with how they changed to how they dealt with at mentioning or some some weird thing. And they all got their their handles and they all left for a bit. And then like nothing, it just didn't work. It was the same thing. Like nobody was tweeting there. No one was following them. The conversation was just dead. It went cold and everything kind of, I can't even find the name of this thing. I'm looking on Google. I cannot find it. Because it was just it was just a poof, and we'll we'll see what happens here. By the way, we can just go on and on, but <laughs> like if you look at Facebook and you look particularly at Facebook, like what are the top ten most shared articles, the articles that are trending that are rising? Like they're all conservative sites. I mean, they're almost all conservative. I sites. mean, we could do like literally twenty more episodes about like. But like conservative voices, news consumption on on cons- social media conservative platforms. Conservative voices <laughs> dominate. A yeah. lot of these social media platforms. So the idea that they have they're being unfair, unfairly treated, they're certainly not like it's not like they're blo- not blossoming there, right? right they right. certainly are. Yeah, Brendan, what's your quality or questionable observations from your shows? So why don't we go with a positive, positive thing? You know, one of these quality moments, and this is, you know, every so often there is a Sunday show host who gets a bee in their bonnet about something. And they just pursue it throughout the whole show. Is this Jake Tapper? No, this is Margaret Brennan. Oh, interesting. Margaret Brennan was speaking with Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar. And he was on Face the Nation talking about the vaccine, the rollout. The vaccine was approved, it's important to say, on late Friday night. And it's going out there with the first vaccinations potentially starting as early as Monday or Tuesday. But she wanted to know... When are they going to start? Because they're supposed to start in two places, right? Number one being frontline healthcare workers. Number two, number two being people in nursing homes. Residents. Yes, residents. And now the frontline healthcare workers, you just send the vaccines to hospitals, right? And hospitals can deal with that. But for the for the uh, people in the nursing homes, they can't necessarily, you know, they don't have distribution means as as easily organized as hospitals do. And so a lot of these are going to CVS and then people at nursing homes are kind of going and getting them from CVS. Well, apparently CVS has been told to wait until December 21st to distribute that vaccine, even though it's supposedly going out now. And so why is it that they're going to wait like a week to distribute this thing when people are dying now? Well, take a listen to Margaret Brennan asking Alex Azar about this, trying to get to the bottom of it with him. And then after that, she goes on to ask Scott Gottlieb about it, 
to get of even course. more clarity about what is going Scott on. Le- Gottlieb is pretty much her medical fact check yes, at this exactly, point. Yes, <laughs> exactly, which is great. So here we go. We're going to play these two clips. Okay. Well, I want to ask you specifically about something CBS revealed. They said they're not going to start vaccinating, even though they're receiving it this month, until December 21st, because the Trump administration told them to wait until that date. Why is the Trump administration asking nursing homes to wait? Yeah, no, we're not actually asking the nursing homes to wait. And we were able to have a really good discussion with CVS leadership about this misunderstanding that they had uh, at the president's vaccine distribution summit. So I think we've gotten that all straightened out with them. And uh, we'll be getting CVS and Walgreens vaccinating our nursing home people. Almost 100% of our nursing homes have signed up with that program for a turnkey vaccination operation. And you know what's amazing? When will that start then? Well, it can start really any day. The vaccines are going out as soon as they receive vaccine. Uh, This is according to the governors telling us to ship to them. We could have every nursing home patient vaccinated in the United States by Christmas. It's really a remarkable, remarkable prospect for all of us who have loved ones in nursing homes that we may approach Christmas with that level of comfort that that our that our loved ones have gotten some initial protection already. Certainly, given that 50,000 nursing home patients are getting infected a week, uh, let's watch and see when those begin we will we will track that but it'll take three weeks total to get through those those nursing homes there's about 45,000 in the country so this is a big undertaking I understand it's big undertaking but there are vaccine doses being made available before then why I mean this seems like a costly delay since the elderly are so vulnerable Look, it's a very costly delay. There's 50,000 new infections in nursing homes every week right now, probably more than that. We know 20% of people in the nursing homes who are infected will succumb to the infection. So there's a lot of death happening in these nursing homes. I think the critical issue is that the consents weren't in place. You have to consent to patients. They want to get all the consents in place before they go into the nursing homes. Why? Because they didn't do it in advance. I think they could have. They could have provided a fact sheet. They could have cleared a fact sheet with the FDA, maybe provided a limited emergency use authorization just for the nursing homes to get that information cleared so they could have properly consented patients. That wasn't done. We are where we are right now, but that needs to be done this week. They need to consent those patients. And in some cases, they'll have to go to family members because they'll be dealing with patients, unfortunately, who don't have capacity to give consent for themselves. Mm -hmm. So not an easy task, but probably something that should have been done in advance. Yeah, I mean, and don't get me wrong. It is good news the vaccine's out there, but now getting it out to the people is the really complicated part. And that's being left up to the states to figure out. So not only in these two clips, she also asked another of her guests, a guest who is kind of the head of one of the healthcare organizations in New Jersey about this topic. And, and he confirmed that indeed, you know, CVS had been asked to wait until December 21st on this. Just a fascinating, really important moment here. I really thought it was kind of the best thing that stood out to me on on the three shows that I reviewed because she not only pushed and pushed and pushed back on Secretary Azar, she brought it up with all of her guests and then ultimately got this really strong fact check from Scott Gottlieb, which my goodness, what a night and day experience hearing in one clip Alex Azar say we could have every nursing home patient vaccinated by Christmas. And then immediately Scott Gottlieb saying, it's not going to start until the 21st and it takes three weeks. So it's there's no way it's going to happen. Right, essentially. In four days. Yeah. The full dosage is not even possible until 15 days after your first vac- the first dose. Well, true. That's true as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I this is super interesting because 
the determination for frontline healthcare workers and residents of long-term care facilities was prioritizing two populations. It's the extremely vulnerable and preventing deaths and the extremely vulnerable in preventing transmission, right? Right, right. And healthcare workers, because they're in such contagious spaces, it's you're kind of in this position where you can easily spread it to your community, to your family, to, to whatever, right? Absolutely. And residents along in nursing homes are just so vulnerable and they can more easily die from it. So to only center the conversation around vaccine distribution for one of those vulnerable populations and not both, these media organizations are are literally missing the due diligence of half of the goals, Yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like if you're only caring about healthcare workers, then why aren't all frontline essential workers getting it, right? Yeah, then you could say, yeah. you know, teachers need to get it or logistics workers and delivery people because they're all, you know, in in like transient spaces. Yeah. But but that's not that's not what the FDA prioritized. They prioritize the ones who could die really easily and the ones who are in really contagious spaces. And so it's interesting that the conversation has been so solely focused on healthcare workers. And I think there's three other reasons why frontline healthcare workers have been chosen to be the first ones to get this vaccine. One, we think of them as heroes. Number two is that it's easier to get to them, right? They're in hospitals. Yeah, it's a very easy place to distribute. And number three is that there is a limited number of frontline healthcare workers, and we do not want to have them getting sick. And also, we want them to feel like they have all the tools they need to, to keep themselves safe. Because there's been a lot of workers who say, you know, I'm just not going to put myself in harm's way, right? And so if we can make that space safer for them, we can potentially, you know, retain this resource. I, I think it was a smart choice on that part, but you're absolutely right. And, you know, the numbers that he that he mentions here, 50,000 nursing home patients getting it a week and 20% of them dying, that's 10,000 patients in nursing homes dying every week. Today, like that's insane after all of the careful measures that have been put in place to protect them. Unbelievable. So I just, I appreciate her pursuing this so dogmatically, like we need to get to the bottom of why there's a delay here. And it truly is unacceptable that these patients weren't asked to sign their consents ahead of time. You know, that that could potentially mean 10,000 more people die because it takes an extra week to vaccinate them. You know, literally 10,000 lives that could cost. Because you couldn't get the like paperwork said, it's together. It's not fully first. vaccinated. It's they start their vaccination. Well, right, right. But we can imagine, right? If but it's only 50% effective after the first dosage. Well, and I understand. So, but like, it's, it's, it's a week late that they'll all have I know, their... I know. But like you heard Azar say like, you know, X amount of people can be vaccinated by this day. And yes. It's like, doesn't mean they're safe completely. Absolutely. Yes. Do you have a questionable moment? Yes, I do have a worse part, and that is Jake Tapper. It's a, it's a short one. Jake Tapper speaking with FDA Commissioner Dr. Stephen Hahn. So Dr. Hahn was under the thumb of the Trump administration this week when they were demanding, essentially, that he get this vaccine approved, this damn vaccine approved already, as Trump tweeted right. on Friday. Now, it's understandable. Frankly, I understood why the Trump administration was frustrated with the FDA's speed on this because three other countries had already authorized this thing that was developed in America before America did. And I could see, you know, as as 
people are getting vaccines in other countries, people start asking, what is going on here? What is the delay? My number one question that I wished Margaret Brennan had pursued dog- as dogmatically as she did the other one is, why did we have to wait, you know, several weeks for this commission to meet as they did on Thursday, this independent review board, and look at the vaccine? I don't understand why we just had to wait for their calendar to roll around to I their get- meeting. That I didn't I, understand. I He was on this week and he talks about the need for the scientists and the committee to like review the data to review the findings and all of that but i hear you keep going anyway jake tapper had him on asked a number of questions but here's my frustration out of the 12 total questions that jake tapper asked and i counted them out of the 12 questions he asked and that includes follow-ups five of them five of them were just yes or no questions what a waste of time yes or no yes or no yes or no How about inviting a broader discussion, a wider discussion, or a more meaningful discussion? But literally, nearly half of the questions that were asked were just yes or no questions. And we have listeners who have tweeted and emailed us about the value or lack thereof of yes or no questions. Sorad O'Brien hates yes or no questions. I mean, I think it can be done in an interesting way, but very rarely. Well, I think it works best when it's like, Well, anyway, take a listen to some of these yes or no questions, and then we can talk about it. Mr. Hahn, just to be clear, did White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows in any way suggest that if the FDA did not grant uh, emergency youth authorization to this vaccine more quickly, then in any way it would be more difficult for you to continue in your job? An FDA advisory panel slated to meet this Thursday to recommend whether to issue emergency use authorization for a different coronavirus vaccine from Moderna. Uh, Do you expect that by the end of this week, the U.S. could have two vaccines available in the U.S. Have you spoken with any members of the transition team for President, President-elect Biden about handing off to them on January 20th? I mean, these questions, <laughs> it's a checklist question. Right, interview. right. Yeah, and the frustration for me is Han could have just said, no, can't say. How is that interesting? an interesting discussion, an interesting conversation? I mean, that's, this, is the, this is the issue, right? You are setting such a low bar for your guest right. when all they need to do is answer with one word. That is a low bar. That is not a tough interview. No matter how tough it might seem that you're asking this question, it's a low bar when you're only asking them to say one word. That's not really holding them to account. And anyway, Han himself did not have very particularly interesting answers to this because <laughs> a lot of the conversation was... The types of questions Jake really wanted to ask were for Azar, and Azar answered them on Face the Nation, but he didn't have Azar. And so Han was like, well, I can't really talk about vaccine distribution because we don't really do that. Or I can't really talk about like, yeah, yeah, it's like there's a lot of parts. You have someone else on here. Interview him. Interview the top scientist who helped make this happen. Exactly. Exactly. So, Brendan, interesting way, quality questionable. Let's talk about politics now because we never do that. Mm-hmm. So politics. <laughs> Keep it wise, fresh here. Changing it up. <laughs> politics wise, Naomi, was there something that really just stood out to you as like uh, kind of the top political thing you want to talk about in these two shows you looked at? Yeah. So it was a kind of theme that I saw throughout the episode of this week. This week was hosted by Martha Raditz, and I noticed something that we've kind of talked about last week when we were talking about the lack of any type of explanation around the COVID economic relief package. I remember we said something to the effect of like, if you're a Republican, it's hard to know like why Republicans aren't for this or what kind of, you know, 
why doesn't Mitch McConnell want this versus what Trump wants and how do I like it's it's hard to place yourself yes. I think within the Republican Party right now I would imagine and this question kind of came up directly in Martha Raddatz's interviews on this week and specifically like what is the future of the Republican Party and I kind of wanted to show a few different clips in which she brings this up again and again and kept kind of like weaving the conversation longer and longer the first clip I'm going to show is from the Rom and Christie show so she had Rom and Christie as their own little panel and then later she had another panel with also more with Matthew Dowd who's like a Republican analyst commentator pundits and so makes no no sense the organization of it but anyway (laughs) first i'm gonna play a clip from chris christie and then we'll move on to a couple clips from the panel itself in this clip you'll hear chris christie start off talking about trump's criticism of republican governors who refuse to support his election fraud allegations right um show us the evidence and, and what's gotten even worse, though, Martha, I think, is is the attacks by the president on good, hardworking, decent Republican governors. And and you've seen his attitude towards these folks change. Um, and, and let's think about why. You know, back in, in September, he said about Doug Ducey, Doug is tough, Doug is strong, Doug is a good governor, the Arizona governor. Uh, he said about Brian Kemp back in the summer, uh, you know, that Brian is a capable man. He knows what he's doing. Um, And he's done a very good job as governor. Now, after the election is over and he lost Arizona and Georgia, he says they're rhinos that are working harder against him. Um, He's calling them corrupt. Uh, and also telling people things that aren't true. So, so Chris, uh, what happens to your party? He's talking about signature verification. Uh, Listen, you know, Martha's going to be have people are going to have to stand up and start to say these things. I mean, you know, the fact is in Georgia and people should know this, that signature verification, which the president continues to tweet about, has been done twice in this election. It was done when the application for a mail-in ballot was sent in. And it was done when that mail-in ballot was ultimately set in. And Governor Kemp has said this. The lieutenant governor said it. The secretary of state has said it. So just a completely befuddled Chris Christie here. Frustrated that the president won't stop targeting these. Yeah, target. That's a nicer word that I was thinking. I was trying to think of a nice word. Tearing into. Yeah, these Republican governors and trashing. New trashing. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. And that there's no merit to these allegations, that the, these frustrations, and and these Republican governors just have to take it. But I love in the middle of that Martha Rad is saying like, Chris, what happens to your party? Like, <laughs> yeah. WTF? Like. Where does it go now? And he just kind of stays in this line of trying to talk about this voter fraud issue. And she wants to have a bigger conversation like no one is standing up to this man. Like, what are you guys going to do? Well, this kind of connects to one of the things I'm going to bring up as well. But I do want to point out that Trump did it again tonight. Right. He tore into trashed Governor Kemp, the Republican governor of Georgia. On this same signature issue that Christie is fact-checking him on right now, and Trump actually threatened in this message that, oh, things might not go so well for these, you know, great Republican senators in their re-election in January. Yeah, totally undermining the Republican Party in Georgia. Yeah, yeah. So later in the show, 
in the panel, Martha Raddatz has Susan Glasser on. She is a writer with The New Yorker. And she also has Matthew Dowd on. And in both of them, she's kind of asking them to examine where the Republican Party goes next. First clip will be Susan Glasser, and then we'll listen to Matthew Dowd. Overturn an unequivocally free and fair election. You heard me talk to Chris Christie about it. But what will the blowback be for all those Republicans who supported the president's efforts in the Texas lawsuit? Well, Martha, that's what's so remarkable, really. You have a situation where two-thirds of the House Republican uh, caucus, including people from the states whose results were being challenged, meaning their own election was being challenged, who signed on to this spurious lawsuit, rejected out of hand by the Supreme Court. The question is, did they do so because they thought that courts would throw it out? Is this an instance where they felt that the lack of accountability gave them leave uh, to essentially engage in a sort of performative display of loyalty? loyalty to the president. Are there going to be any consequences? I don't think that they believe that there are going to be. Uh, Really, it tells you that uh, Trump himself has taken over the Republican Party to an extent that would have been inconceivable. And I have to say, uh, you know, to me, that is a crucial question. What's gone on after the election, this, this very toxic convergence of election denialism and virus denialism, uh, will the Republican Party face any consequences for it, I, to me, is, is the question right now. And, and, and speaking, we've talked about the good news, but I, I want to talk to Susan's point about, about the Republican Party and what I asked Chris Christie about as well. Really, truly, what, what happens now to those Republicans who, who support this? How dramatically has the Republican Party changed? Oh, I mean, it's it's dramatic. I mean, I've watched the changes. As you know, I worked for George W. Bush in 2000 and 2004. There was a struggle in the party among the people that were much more unaligned with the, where the Republicans normally doubt. I think the Republican Party has become basically the autocratic party in America. It's almost as if there's team democracy versus team autocracy in this country. It's not Donald Trump that's changed the Republican Party. Donald Trump represents what the Republican Party's changed. So the defeat of Donald Trump isn't going to fundamentally change this because the Republican Party itself over the last 20 years has moved to this position. Wow, that's thought-provoking. Yeah, right? Like Dowd's book on that. Maybe him and Kasich, John Kasich, are going to be in the third-party ticket 2024. Oh, okay. I thought you were saying I should read a book by John Kasich. No, I mean that they'll be like you know, on a presidential ticket together. Oh, I don't think Dowd's going to run for anything. (laughs) Yeah, he likes making money. It's true. Um, But anyway, this was super, super, super interesting to me and something that I've been wanting to see discussed for a really long time. I mean, we've been missing across the last four to five years genuine analysis of what the heck is happening in the Republican Party. And if you're a Republican or a Democrat and you care about a two-party system, you should be concerned about the dysfunctionality within the Republican Party. If you're a Republican who turned into a never-Trumper and kind of voted for Biden this time around, it must be really hard to find decent analysis of your party. And and there's a lot of questions here, right? Yeah. Like, what's motivating these Republicans who are standing by Trump after such like a volatile presidency? Like, like, okay, fine. Before there was like the threat that Trump was going to hate on you, tweet about you and support a primary and that right. kept everybody in line. Yes. Right. But that's not the case anymore. He's a lame duck and the election is literally over. Most of them have won their reelection and they're still kind of supporting his 
lunacy. Like, well, yeah, and that's the that's the question here. Is it's like you're you're at you are the fur at the furthest point right now as you can be right to being primaried. You are right. at the furthest point. Like the idea that people are going to remember in November 2022 what you tweeted about November 2020. Like, no, no one cares at that point. Yeah. So, like, what is the long? And Trump isn't going to remember. He's yeah. not going to remember to primary you. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I mean, come on. Sure. But, like, what is the long-term vision of Republicans who have been more vocal? Like, the Romneys, the Toomey, you, you know, Governor Hogan. They probably won't say what they want to do next. Like, if they want to run for president, if they want to, you know, what their aspirations are. But at minimum, you would think, you would hope that they'd want to talk about what they want for their party. Like, I don't even hear that. You know what a lot of this reminds me of, though, frankly? It reminds me of peer pressure, right? You know, when you're in school and they're talking about, you know, don't take drugs. And, you know, there's this... <laughs> the D.A.R.E. program the really Dare did program, a number on you. <laughs> right? Yeah. And they're just like, they're like, oh, you know, your, your friends are all going to be there. And they'll be like, come on, everyone's doing it. Come on, try this. Come on, everyone's doing it. And I think there's a lot of peer pressure there. It's like, come on, look, a hundred and... 119 people have put signed their names to this. You don't want to be the one who's out. You know, do you want to be on the side with, you know, the leaders of the House? Or do you want to be on the other side, right? Because House Republican leadership did sign on to that to that letter. But the reason why this is so important, this conversation here and some of the conversations I want to highlight, is that there's actually a discussion about what the consequences might be to this. Mm-hmm. And they're talking mm-hmm. about this as an... Our dog does not care. <laughs> She's a Republican walking out of this conversation. I don't want to talk about this. <laughs> but or, no, she wouldn't be Republican. But seriously, <laughs> they're talking about this as if it's something major, as if it, as if it's something big. And that's what I appreciate because it is something major. It they is being something the, big. The, these panelists. These and panelists com- and this Sunday show, yes. right? And a number of Sunday shows took it very seriously. And I think that's extremely important because one thing that I've been, been surprised by throughout this era of norm breaking and rule breaking among politicians is the extent to which politicians have been able to kind of explain away it as, no, it's not such a big deal, right? I mean, we've heard this so many times, right? Oh, it's not such a big deal. You know, Trump needs to have his legal right. He's got a legal right to go and file these lawsuits. And just because some news media organization, some mainstream media thing projects Biden as the winner, that doesn't mean he's the winner, right? There might be some some real issues here. And we owe it to our voters who have a lot of questions about this because we we planted those questions. They have a lot of questions about this and we owe it to them to follow this through. And Trump has every right. Right. And we've heard this all the way to today where Lamar Alexander, Republican senator sitting on the verge of retirement, literally ready to retire, walk out the door after decades of serving in the Senate. And serving as someone who bucked the trends of his party is so unwilling to push back. Yeah, he had he admits Biden won the presidency, but he's not ready to say that these Republicans have lost their way. He's not ready to say that Republicans are are doing something norm breaking. He just keeps saying, well, look, Gore, Gore, you know, when he contested the election and went to the Supreme Court, he had his day in court and that was perfectly fine. So why can't Trump have it? And we'll see what happens, you know, with these uh, electors meeting tomorrow, Monday, 
to do the Electoral College. And there's just an extent to which Republicans have been able to say, it's not a big deal. Sure, we signed our name to this, but, you know, you saw Dan Crenshaw tweeting about it, the Republican um, congressman congressman from Texas saying, it's not such a big deal, you know. It, we just owe it to see what's going on, you know, to, to, to make sure that every every stone is overturned. And finally, these shows are saying, no, we're drawing the line here. This is anti-democratic. This is, you know, small d democratic. They should say this is anti-democracy. Don't use the word democratic because people think it's political. Right. This is anti-democracy what you're doing here. Right. So it sounds like we're segueing to a political moment that you saw, Brendan. Is that what Lamar Alexander's about? Or that's just something you saw? Yeah, absolutely, Naomi. That is what I want to talk about when it comes to the you know top political content that stood out to me this week on these three shows, Face the Nation, Meet the Press, and State of the Union. Now, it really was just a, something that happened on Meet the Press and State of the Union. But take a listen to what Chuck Todd did at the top of his show, right at the beginning. Do love the Chuck intros. In addition to this attack on our health, there's the simultaneous attack on our democracy. Late Friday, the Supreme Court rejected a lawsuit filed by 18 Republican state attorneys general and supported by more than 120 Republican members of Congress, more than half of the Republicans in Congress, to overturn the legitimate results of the presidential election. That President Trump would support such an anti-small-D Democratic move, that's no longer a surprise. What's more alarming is the willingness of so many Republicans to debase themselves and the democracy that they've sworn to serve simply for fear of losing a primary or a more Trumpian candidate. Read this list. Learn the names. The courts have preserved our democracy for now. Hopefully, we can all now focus our efforts on one front, the health front, where the progress on vaccines offers hope for relief in the midst of what is likely to be a very tough winter. Naomi, what's your impressions of hearing that? I I saw you kind of like open your eyes wide there. It's like a combination. What I'm hearing is it seems like a combination of both disgust and disappointment in that no matter what party, you should be able to expect more than this. And these are the fundamentals of our government falling apart. And we need to remember who is responsible for it. Yeah, I mean, that putting all the names on the screen as they did and saying, read this list, learn the names, literally is Chuck Todd saying, hold these people accountable. That's what that's what was being asked by Martha Raddatz. Is there going to be any accountability? Will there be consequences? Right. And here's Chuck Todd saying there damn well should be consequences. And it's very interesting, too, I mean, to talk from a journalistic perspective, right? We've often discussed, you know, what is the role of these Sunday shows? Are they patriotic institutions or are they simply the historian in the library who is completely cold and looking Devoid at the of facts? reaction. Right, right. And and they don't have a they don't have a an agenda, right? Clearly, Chuck Todd is on the side of democracy and he's made it clear here. And his show is, right? They've decided to put this up there and say, being against democracy is not okay. And that's a, that's a stance that they're holding. I don't think it's necessarily a stance that is new. I'm sure if you asked, you know, old people who served in news like Walter Cronkite, whether they were for or against democracy, they'd say they were for it. Right. I think you'd see something very similar in the times of, you know, are you for democracy versus the Soviet Union and communism or, you know, or not. Right. But 
clearly this is this is a major major line well it makes me think of we've chuck todd has talked about this a lot on both meet the press itself also on his podcast the chuck todd cast that trump does not feel shame right there's no shame to the man and that has always been something that made politicians vulnerable and the fact that he doesn't feel shame like criticism you know profoundly critical investigations like alligator like nothing penetrates him right yeah and that it's kind of his superpower almost that he doesn't feel shame and and it kind of every time i hear chuck todd talk about it he seems like both equally still surprised and also concerned and i wonder if he thinks that's spreading like concern that now more people in Congress, more elected officials aren't going to feel shame, well, which has been such a key piece of holding government officials accountable. Well, and it's not just Republicans who are learning the lesson, right? We saw this with Ralph Northam, the governor of Virginia. When sure, he was, yeah. He was, he was the top of the news. I think it was the week that we were visiting Meet the Press in person. Oh, right, because Broca said something, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, about like white people being concerned about their brown grand- grandchildren. Do you remember? Yes, I do recall that. But there was also <laughs> I this, remember it vividly, clearly. But there was also this also this discussion about the fact that he was he gonna resign or not? And he just said nope. nope. Northam. Northam, yeah. yeah. Governor Democratic governor of Virginia just said no, I'm not gonna resign. I'm not gonna resign. And I he's, pol- he's still governor of Virginia. He waited state. it out. He wrote it out. Yeah, he wrote it out and that's that's what people are learning. I do want to point out, so the second thing I wanted to highlight was Jake Tapper. In his closing, he talked about this explicitly as well. And he also mentioned what you just said, Naomi. And I'm just going to read it to you because it wasn't part of my clip. But this is what he said. He said, the president has also exposed the problem that so many of our standards and norms in the U.S. seem to be based upon the honor system. There isn't, for instance, an explicit law against a U.S. president trying to extort a foreign country to provide dirt on a domestic political opponent. A government upheld upon the honor system, Jake said only works if everyone involved has honor. This seems something that legislators should re-examine. I thought that was an interesting way to put it, right? So anyway, here's what he said related to Republicans signing on to this lawsuit. And then finally, let us look at the events of the last week where the president pushed an insane lawsuit, the big one, he called it, from the attorney general of Texas. It was a clownish legal brief based on conspiracy theories and outright lies. And 18, 18 state attorneys general, some U.S. senators, and a majority of the House Republican caucus, 126 members, supported it. President Trump did us a favor by exposing these elected officials. They are definitionally people who signed on to a desperate desire to subvert the will of the American people to disenfranchise voters in Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan based on lies and conspiracy theories, putting an immoral and corrupt power grab above democracy. President Trump did us a favor by revealing to us that those individuals are who they are. And that's important as we go forward because the business of this nation continues. The pandemic, the economy, foreign policy, immigration. And now we know clearly how much these individuals care about facts or truth, how much they care about democracy 
or the principles that make this country great, which is to say, not at all. But President Trump made House Republicans go on the record. He made them stand and be counted, and 126 of them, including Republican leader Kevin McCarthy and Republican whip Steve Scalise, they actually signed their names to this, this unconservative, undemocratic, un-American, mendacious joke of a lawsuit that would disenfranchise millions of their fellow Americans. These House Republicans raised their hands. They said, sign me up. The hope that most Republicans in the House were better than this, that's been destroyed. So I want to start by saying we've called out Jake Tapper in the past for using freighted language, freighted emotional language in places that they're not necessarily appropriate or even effective. And we see a little bit of that here. It's a little a little on the side of, of melodrama. He's kind of pulling as many words as he possibly can to underscore how, how big this issue is. But I do think it's important that it is underscored, regardless of how much we might want to edit these particular adjectives that he is throwing out there. And the fact that he has that level of emotion and frustration in his voice as someone who has covered politics for decades and now sees an entire party, half, uh, more than half of the members of Congress from the Republican Party signing on to something that is ready to throw out the votes of everyone in four states. That is just extremely, extremely, extremely concerning and disappointing as someone who has covered and spoken and had had I'm sure he's had conversations with the people that he names here, right? Yeah. And is just like how could you, you know? Yeah, and it's I mean, it's not surprise, right? Because like I don't think anyone should be surprised that the party is here because that's the track that they've been going on, really. There hasn't been a lot of signs or demonstrations of confrontation between Republicans or concern of Trump behavior. There's been a lot of enabling. And this is this is what it all comes down to. And I I guess my question, it's not even a question, but time will tell whether or not journalists five years from now, 10 years from now, will feel like this should have been said two years early. Right. Like, what is the value in doing it in lame duck presidency? Well, it's, it, it's interesting you point that out because there is parts of this, you know, this was only some of what, Jake Tapper said here, but he kind of hinted at the answer to your question there, Naomi, by saying that Senate Republicans have been cowardly in their silence. That's the term he uses. But Donald Trump made House Republicans go on the record. Oh, interesting. And put sign their name to this. And it does seem like it has taken journalists to see, you know, these individuals stand up and say, as Jake Tapper said, sign me up, right? They want to see that they actually hear. But it's interesting when you contrast it with what Chuck Todd said, right? There's a real difference here. It seems like they might be saying the same thing, but they're not. Jake Tapper is saying these individuals have shown by signing their name to this that they do not care about democracy or the principles that make this country great. They don't care about facts or truth. He says, how much do they care? He says, not at all. That's what Jake Tapper says. Chuck Todd, very different. Chuck Todd's interpretation is, and he says it straight straight out right here. He says, 
that they have debased themselves, now that's kind of freighted language, and the democracy that they've sworn to serve for fear of losing a primary to a more Trumpian candidate. Chuck Todd's interpretation is they're doing this out of fear. That's a more generous, you know, right. interpretation. And Jake Tapper is saying, I've had it. They've put their name to this, and this must be them. This is who they really are. Given the benefit of the doubt Chuck, oh, for Chuck Todd that there's a better version. Yes. And, and Jake Tapper is accepting that this is them. Very interesting. I mean, clearly, we as Polylog are interested in the future of the Republican Party. It'd be really depressing to think that all of Polylog future episodes is... There's not going to be like a functional two-party system and a and journalistic enterprises exploring the priorities and strategies of those two parties. And as opposed to one of those parties constantly trying to undermine like the fundamentals of our democracy. Well, that does take you to like, what what is the future? There was one thing that Washington Post contributing columnist Matt Bai said about this, and I thought it was very insightful and very interesting. And uh, I'll just play a small bit of it here. All you got to do is, is, is put up the threat of a primary or have somebody who berates them on Twitter and they, the entire party completely folds. Um, it's, it's, there's, I've been really surprised, particularly uh, by the behavior after the election, and I think uh, they're going to have to deal with that legacy for a very long time. They will not have a party. And the, and most, the funniest part about it, Chuck, and the reason they won't have a party is because within six months, I guarantee you, sure as I am sitting here talking to you, Donald Trump will be berating them on social media and going after them because that anti-establishment, anti-party fuel is what keeps his movement going. Such an important reminder and something that I had forgotten. But yes, one of the things that made Donald Trump rocket to the top of the primary was by berating and railing against the establishment Republicans, right? Saying they didn't do it, they didn't have it. You know, look at the Bushes. You know, he said bad things about Bush. He said bad things about McCain. These were Republican Party standard bearers. He said they couldn't get the job done. He berated, you know, Mitt Romney. He basically said, look, I'm your guy because these people haven't done it and they're not doing it right. And already we see him attacking governors, Republican governors. So it's kind of a preview of that, which is, I guess it should not surprise us because as Donald Trump leaves, if he truly does want to make another run at the presidency, he will have to win a Republican primary. It won't be given to him like this time was as sitting president. He will have to win it against others, and that will require him to make Republicans the number one target of his focus and not Democrats. So it's, as Matt Bai says here, it could potentially be a very tragic story of Republicans who worked so hard in so many ways to align themselves with him and then ended up being thrown under the bus. But frankly, they shouldn't be surprised because as we've seen on Polylog time and time again, that happens to almost every person who joins the Trump administration or the Trump orbit. They work really hard. And then even people who everyone was saying was, you know, the example of Trump's you know, happy warrior soldier doing everything Trump says, like Attorney General Bill Barr, are now being rumored to be fired. But Naomi, we talked a lot about politics. Let's talk about journalism. Well, we have a lot of thoughts about that, too. So I wanted to talk about journalism, but specifically public distrust more broadly and what journalism institutions can or maybe should be doing to rectify it and, and just kind of the environment that we are in as public distrust grows so rapidly. 
and like distrust of journalists you're saying well let me explain so i think in general the public has grown a lot in skepticism in episode 183 we talked to lynn walsh of trusting news yep. and she talks a lot about how the public has lost a lot of confidence in journalistic institutions and there's a lot that those institutions can do to build trust to build a relationship with their with their audience and really kind of not have to do quite so much convincing yeah. of, of what they're finding in their reports. But I think that ties to public distrust in our government officials, public distrust in our, you know, government agencies. There's distrust in institutions that used to be steadfast. And that's especially true, I think, with this Trump administration, but it's not solely because of the Trump administration. I, I just want to clarify. It's something that's been kind of growing for a long, long time. Kind of think of the, the Tea Partiers not believing that Obama really was American or, or whatever it might be. I feel like this growing distrust has now gotten us to a point in which, for so many reasons, Americans are skeptical of this vaccine. You know, Operation Warp Speed, this that was just approved, that has now been, you know, flying to different cities across America. The vaccine. Right. This weekend, like, it is a true feat of science, of the pharmaceutical industry, of government collaborating in a way that truly is unprecedented to be able to get this vaccine out, right? Yep. It's hard to find those, like, true celebrations because, and, and relief, I think because... There's so much skepticism and fear and hesitancy around this vaccine. And we saw this directly in the interview with Monsef Slawi on Fox News Sunday. Yeah, so Dr. Slawi, again, head of Operation Warp Speed. There were just a couple, there was like two or three moments that really demonstrated to me how he as a scientist is just like so frustrated about this vaccine hesitancy. So we need to have immunized about 75 or 80 percent of the U.S. population before herd immunity can really be established. We hope to reach that point between the month of May and the month of June. It is, however, critical that most of the American people decide and accept to take the vaccine. We are very concerned by the hesitancy that we see, the level of hesitancy that we see Uh, But we hope that now that all the data is out and available to be discussed in detail, that people will keep their mind open to listen to the data and hopefully agree that this is a very effective and safe vaccine and therefore take it. I want to pick up, doctor, on on the issue that you raised just before this. Uh, While Operation Warp Speed has had some remarkable breakthroughs, there is this question of public doubt about taking the vaccine. I want to put these numbers up on the screen. In a recent poll, 27% of Americans said they're, quote, not sure they'll get the vaccine. And 26% said they will not get it. I understand it's early and people's minds may change, but if more than half of Americans didn't get the vaccine, what would that mean for the pandemic? Would it continue? I unfortunately I think it would and I think there will be still a lot of virus circulating a lot of people dying a lot of people in hospitals I think it would be a very very unfortunate outcome frankly I'm very concerned uh, by this level of hesitancy that is not anchored in any facts or data unfortunately there was so much politics around 
in the context of developing these vaccines that there's been a confusion between how thorough and scientific and factual the work that has been done is uh, and the perception that people are thinking that we cut corners or anything like that. I can guarantee you that no such things have happened, that we followed the science. It's actually a remarkable achievement of science, academia, the industry ecosystem, and the U.S. government working together uh, relentlessly that has allowed this to happen. And, uh, and please, just keep your mind open, look at the data, look at people who get the vaccine, how they will get protected, and be safe. And I hope most people will finally decide to take this vaccine. So a couple of longer clips, but I, I just found this in, so interesting. Dr. Slawi, you know, kind of earlier in the interview talking about how the goal is to vaccinate about 100 to 120 million people in the first quarter, specifically frontline healthcare workers, long-term residents, long-term care residents. But he seems so frustrated and so annoyed, frankly, as a scientist, that there is so much hesitancy around this vaccine. Yeah, you're working so hard around the clock, you know, night and day saying, you know, we're going to solve this for you, you know, who are suffering out there. And then you give it to them and they say, hmm, nah, not for me. No, thanks. And yet, you know, as a public health official, what that means, right? Right. And that and he says that that there's if there we they can't reach the 75, 80 percent immunity that there's still going to be a lot of virus. And a lot of virus means people out of work. It means people dying. It means people not being able to gather. It means not seeing grandparents. It means not being able to travel. (laughs) Not any more stamps in your passports. It means people don't want Americans visiting their country. Like it means like these huge things that we have all experienced all year long. And really, I mean... I'm not trying to like shame into like everyone needs to take the vaccine as soon as they can, although I do feel like that. But I feel like this is all the all the like, to be frank, all the bullshit that we heard throughout the Trump administration and kind of like, I don't know, Americans just have been used to this jaw dropping behavior by this administration. There was the Muslim ban. There was kind of siding up to Putin in Helsinki. Remember that? That was insane. There was children. That and gift. Ki- there was that weird gift that was given. Wasn't there like a ball or some sort of gift? Oh, that was- yeah. There was a, there was the love letters with Kim Jong-un. I mean. Remember when he pressed that that crazy orb oh, the with orb, the Saudis? The Saudis. Yeah. <laughs> that was crazy. Like some shit like that. But then like really devastating, heartbreaking stuff like children in cages and separating them from their parents. Like there's just been so much that now we're here, literally in the last few weeks of the Trump presidency, and people are like, nope, I don't believe it. He like, everything about this administration is is sketch. Everything about the federal government is questionable. And I I don't know, I'm going to wait until the second round, or no, I don't want to. And we have scientists who have been working in our public health institutions. We have scientists who work in some of the top pharmaceutical companies in the world, and they're saying, like, this is safe. We need to, like, believe in it. And we as Americans are struggling. Well, it's interesting. You note that on Meet the Press, Francis Collins, the head of the NIH, said that there's basically been no vaccine that's been subjected to this level of scrutiny that they have subjected the Right. And and vaccine. you hear Dr. Slawi say, like, look, we're releasing all the data. Like, you can go through it. You can. You can. And 
I think like what I appreciate most about this interview is that like he's such a scientist about all of this. Like he's so not a politician in any way. And he's like, we worked our asses off to make this possible. And like the public health messaging has just been such a disaster. And now people don't believe in our work. And that's not my fault. Right. And that's the frustration, right? There's not enough discussion about the public health messaging right. as an important issue here because there's I really like the way you put it there, Naomi, that like if people don't take the vaccine, not taking the vaccine means that you can't gather. You can't you can't see your grandparents. You can't go travel internationally. There's a lot of things you can't do. The vaccine is a passport to those things. Right. It's it's like literally our freedom. Right. And there's just I feel like there's a challenge here because, of course, nobody wants to do something that's painful. No one likes shots. No one likes going to get a shot. They probably like it around the same amount that people like going to the dentist, right? People don't like to do these things. They don't like to do things that they don't think they have to do. They don't like making appointments. They don't like standing in lines, all this stuff. We know this, right? And if you have spent all this time telling people that the best way to protect yourself is with the mask, right? The best way to protect yourself is social distancing. Then you could get people saying, you know what, I'm fine. I'm just going to wear the mask. I'm just going to social distance. I, you know, this vaccine, it's, it's sure it's been tested, but it hasn't been deployed. And so I'm just going to wait, right? I don't, I don't want to go out and get it. And I can protect myself anyway with the mask and, and the whatever, right? It's this, uh, this issue of nobody's taking care of the commons, right? It's it's the it's the tragedy of the commons as they call it right in mm-hmm. in uh, economic parlance where everyone takes care of their own little square but the everyone's common property common space is polluted and destroyed and and not taken care of because everyone's just concerned about their little square and it is this is one of those moments where the messaging is going to have to hit people that like you need to do this not only for your own health but for the good of the country for the good of others, and also that passport to to be able to gather, to be able to travel internationally and whatever, you know? Yeah, it's like herd immunity, you know, public health safety. It's like good manners. <laughs> it's care. It's neighborly. It's it's those things that... Patriotic. How it's about patriotic, that word? exactly. And I, I just feel like journalists have a lot to do in the la- these next few weeks which i know they're like totally tired and totally burnt out and so are these public health officials but like we really need to get the messaging down to ensure that people are hearing the right public health messaging and i would say like stop talking about crap that doesn't matter and and i just kind of want to close out with to journalists you would tell journalists right. to say that i want to close out with one quick clip from the end of Dr. Slowey's interview, Chris Wallace also asked Dr. Slowey if Trump slash the White House um, threatened the Stephen Hahn Stephen Hahn to kind of releasing or approving this vaccine. And Dr. Slowey, again, Mr. Scientist, answered with this. Approve the vaccine. If that phone call happened, I think it was useless and unfortunate. And the so are some of the tweets. Wait, are you saying some of Trump's tweets might be useless or unfortunate? I don't yeah. think anyone's come to that conclusion. <laughs> but I just, I thought it was really interesting here. Like, no one here thinks like Dr. Slowey is like a super Biden supporter or fan or, you know, like. Well, and he hasn't even indicated that he's going to stay on, right? Yeah. He's kind of done. Yeah, he's like came on for a very particular role. 
And he's just like, look, these tweets are not helping. That call is stupid. Like, just take the freaking vaccine, people. Mic down. Like, mic drop. (laughs) So public trust, we have a long, long way to go. I know President-elect Biden wants to kind of return to normal, but I think we need to do more than that. I think we need to really rebuild public trust. Brendan, what stood out to you journalistically across the shows? I guess the thing that stood out to me, it's also coronavirus related. It's funny that we kind of like aligned in these in these ways. It's, but, it's almost like we're partnered up in life and like <laughs> see things similarly. But for for this, it's a little different. It's not about actually the vaccine at all, but it's about these Sunday shows finding ways to connect the audience with the gravity of the problem. Because when it comes to the coronavirus, there's a lot of numbers thrown out there, but they can all kind of like, you can kind of glaze over after a while, right? And I feel like these shows, this week in particular, tried to do different things to help people feel the impact of the issues being discussed. And so on Meet the Press, take a listen to what they did kind of throughout their show, but in particular at the beginning and at the end. Over the past week, there have been nearly 1.5 million newly confirmed cases of COVID. It's an average of almost 212,000 new cases per day. So right now, take a look at the counter at the bottom of your screen. We started it at the top of the hour to show you what 212,000 new cases a day comes to in 60 minutes, the length of this broadcast. It's a sobering figure. We're going to go back to the counter throughout the hour. But as you can see, already we're almost at 500 cases. Before we go, time to take one last look at our counter. And based on the average number of confirmed COVID cases each day this week, there are likely to have been nearly 9,000 confirmed cases just in this hour that we've been on the air. This is just one more reminder to please, folks, social distance, wear a mask, wash your hands, be safe, ignore the nonsense on social media, and you know what I'm talking about. That's all we have for today. Thanks for watching. <laughs> so there's his kind of pushback on the on the uh, misinformation there. But think about that. During that broadcast, 9,000 times people had an interaction that got them COVID. 9,000 times throughout this country. You know, I often think about those little maps. Um, if you think of a map of the U.S., like imagine your screen, if you're looking at a screen, or imagine your TV screen or computer screen has a map of the United States on it, right? Now, draw a little a little dot, you know, where you live on that map. And then, like, draw a little dot where, where a friend lives or whatever. You know, just a little dot. Now draw, like, 8,998 more little dots on there. You know, I mean, that's how many... I mean, think about how, how you would just fill that map with 9,000 dots. That's what happens every hour. How many times this virus is being passed between people? It's insane. And I really appreciated that they put this counter down there so you could watch the numbers tick up. That's very, I was going to say very cool, but I would maybe say very effective. I think it's very effective. And it's also a smart editorial choice because they could have gone the other way. They could have put deaths, a death counter on there. And that's just too grim. Yeah, right. I'm sorry. It's just too grim. But this is a way to kind of like serve that same purpose. And also it it gives you a bigger number as well. So uh, it's the numbers are going to move differently. So that was what was done on Meet the Press. And that was kind of creative and something we haven't seen before. And then Jake Tapper did something that we don't see enough, but we probably should. And he played the voice of somebody who is suffering financially during this period. 
This is during his interview with Republican Senator Bill Cassidy of Louisiana. And this is during a conversation about the bill, the bipartisan bill that has been proposed to finally provide $800 billion to help the economy, I think five months after the last stimulus bill passed, unconscionably long. And this is the group, he's of the group that's trying to pull something together. I want you to take a listen to 52-year-old Angela Kearney. She's from Pennsylvania. She has struggled to pay her bills and buy Christmas gifts for her children this year. I promised them that they would be normal children and then the pandemic hit. And I can't keep those promises anymore. I have to take the bills and throw them up and pick the ones and hope that they total the amount that I have. 12 million Americans are going to lose uh, this unemployment benefit in January. 14 million households are at risk of eviction. Yes or no, is there going to be a deal before you leave? Uh, there, there will be a deal, and our bill addresses those issues. We care. The folks working on this bill have heard from her and heard from many others that we need to address this. Now, others can decide to accept our work product or not. But we care. We're going to have that bill and we're going to address those needs, those immediate needs. That is our goal. I think we talked about this last week or the week before, Brendan. I'm it sounds I feel like I'm repeating words I've recently said around the show should be allowing people who've been affected by this virus to speak to their own experience. Yes. Both physically and also economically. And that there's a lot, a lot of people financially hurting and the sheer devastation has not been front and center. It's been a lot of like, so and so many people have lost their homes or so yeah. many and so people ha- are hungry. And, you know, it's... And it's important to have the data, but it's also important to, to feel that To humanize it. Yeah, yeah you it. have to really humanize the, the pain for some time, for some people, for it to be real, for the crisis to feel dire. And it's been dire for people for a really long time. Yeah. And and lives are changing. You know, the way we live our life has changed so dramatically. And it's important to, like, recognize that while these shows are still an hour long and they still feature, you know, interviews with politicians and you turn on your TV at this hour and watch it, like, the world has changed so dramatically, the world that they are covering. And some of those changes... It's not just like getting through this next year or in mm-hmm. the next three months. Like People are making drastic changes that will be pretty permanent. Yeah, where they live, what careers they pursue. Huge, huge changes. Huge changes. And one of the things that, that I thought Meet the Press did as well pretty well is that they, in the data download, it talked about some of those changes. Oh, interesting. Even to the types of gifts that you're getting or or spending money on this holiday season. And all that time inside your home means you've probably noticed all of the things you've put off, leading to a 92% increase in sales of home improvement supplies. And maybe you're one of many Americans who adopted a pandemic puppy or cat or other pet this year. There was a 70% increase in online receipts for pet food, pet toys, and other pet supplies. And then, if you quit going to the gym but wanted to work off any quarantine 15, you might have invested in home gym equipment. Online receipts in health, fitness, and nutrition have climbed an astonishing 122%. I don't know. I have felt 
every uh, single one of those examples. Yeah, right. <laughs> As like my Peloton bike is literally six inches behind me. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm looking at it right here. I thought you'd appreciate that. <laughs> I mean, and those are like some of the smaller changes. Like I've just had multiple conversations with people in these last few weeks of people deciding if they're going to move to a different state, people who are deciding whether they want to live near closer to parents or grandparents, if they're going to have to take care of them and they can't easily travel to people where before a flight was no big deal. And now it's like a huge logistical challenge. People who are imagining their careers much less likely to be in an office than they would have thought two years ago. Huge huge changes and i don't know it's not like i expect this to be a segment but like i just feel like it's not even on the show's radar yeah and that's why i did appreciate that these journalists were finding little ways to highlight yeah yeah how the world has changed well naomi that's it for our first big new episode 200 200 episode scrambled all up And uh, we're going to go into not show rankings, but show ratings, because we didn't watch all the shows together. We can't speak to shows we didn't watch. Okay, so maybe let's do a quick lightning round, as Chris Wallace says. I'll name one of your shows, and you tell me, one through ten, where it rates. Absolutely. State of the Union, what would you say? State of the Union would be a seven. We'll say on a a zero to ten scale. How about that? Okay, fine. Right? So it's a seven, 70 percent, right? So there we go. Okay. And for you, Naomi, how would you say this week was? This week was pretty solid. I would say an eight. All right. How about Face the Nation? How'd Margaret Brennan do? Face the Nation? I gave it a six because there really wasn't any talk about the COVID relief. Oh, at interesting. All. It's insane. So that was, you know, even though there were some other good stuff, it's, it's a six. How was Fox News Sunday? A 7.5. That's so funny you say that because I gave me the press the same, a 7.5. Shut up. I didn't think it rose to the level of 8. It was definitely a little better than State of the Union, but it wasn't an 8. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I really wanted to give it an 8, Fox News Sunday, but the power play of the week was unacceptable. But the other stuff was actually really quite good. Yeah, for me, it was the interview with Senator Lamar Alexander. It just, uh, it kind of dragged. He wasn't really willing to say much. And his political influence has definitely <laughs> decreased quite Waiting. significantly. So, yeah, there just there wasn't as much there as I think the show hoped there would be. Okay, all right. Well, a very interesting episode for episode two hundred. We'll see how much this gets edited down because we've been on the mics for a while. <laughs> and if you have any thoughts about today's show, good, bad, interesting, whatever. Yeah, we really want your thoughts because it's a new format. It's a new format for us, and like we said, what worked, what didn't. Before, we're really exploring new structure, new ideas for the new year, and really the new administration. Absolutely. Brendan, we need a dialogue challenge. Mm, interesting. <laughs> well, I would say, here's how about this? This is very meta, but it's okay. important. Okay. Right? So this new format that we have is about dialogue, right? As is our show. Yes. No, but... It's different, right? Before we were we were conversing on something we both had knowledge of. But I think it's important to recognize that a lot of times when we're in dialogue, one person has more knowledge than the other person. Sure. But it can still make for a really engaging conversation. But you have to kind of rethink the conversation. You have to kind of like rethink the way that the, the rhythm goes and, and how you come to that conversation. And so I would say just think about those conversations where you might be in a situation where the person, one person has more knowledge than the other and how you can facilitate that better. Interesting. 
also kind of a challenge to examine how you participate in conversations when you are more knowledgeable or when you're not. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I have thoughts about that already. Okay. Well, if you have thoughts, you can always email us at podcast at polylog.com. Or this week, Naomi will be emailing all of you her thoughts about that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no. That would be funny if you just got a random email. You're like, how did they get my email? <laughs> you can tweet at us at polylogcast. You can tweet at me at bstidal. And you can tweet at me at Naomi underscore. Thanks, everyone. We will talk with you next week. Bye. Bye.